Yeah, that hurricane moved, huh? Yeah. Andrew emailed me late last night and he was like, I'm coming back to work. I'll be up by noon. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, Ridiculous. He was, over it. he was over the hurricane. Done. He was like, I'm ready to yeah, get back. And to work. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that he was staying at his parents' house with, I think, two other families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then his grandmother yeah. on top of it. And his mm-hmm. grandma. Yes. All the pets. <laughs> I can't imagine. It's like indoor camping with your extended family, nowhere near a holiday where no one can leave. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a blast. But uh, yeah. the folks at Fort Myers definitely got the brunt of it. So if anyone's listening to that area, hopefully you're doing well and safe and holy cow, what a difference coffee makes in our lives. We had our, our family marketing team family call and I was like, eh, I'm kind of, and now I'm like, I'm ready. I am ready (laughs) for this episode. I'm ready to talk. And it's always perfect timing. Remember the one time I got like a spam call, right? When we started started recording. That's the last one. So right now, this thing that I, I talk about, and, and again, a lot of times people think, and I get it because influencers do this all the time, just a reminder, that's not who I am. But I talk yeah. about getting emails all the time from, from other companies. And so headline, potential market proof marketing podcast guest, bleep, bleep, VP of marketing for bleep homes, NASDAQ listed, blah, blah, blah. Good afternoon. Annie here. Nice to meet you. I'm reaching out to propose blank as a potential guest for your podcast. She built the company's entire corporate marketing structure and developed the brand and market. Like it's this completely uninteresting email. You are probably a great guest. You who should not be named, but you should just email me show at do you convert.com or find me on the socials and say, Hey, I'd like to talk. That's, that's all. And <laughs> just someone's paying this company to promote themselves to come on podcasts. When, Let's face it. There's only like three podcasts that, that are well listened to. Everyone knows who they are. You could just email them. Yeah. Just blows my mind. I remember my first week on the job. You're like, here, just, just bet these emails for me for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll take, I'll take it. Half of them were definitely garbage, but most of them were pretty good. Julie just got her purple belt. Everyone. <laughs> I did. Jiu-jitsu. Celebration time is in order. <laughs> and this, I did not realize because we all know that in, in karate or all these other ones, it's, it's, it's a scam. Like you can get a new belt every two weeks as long as you pay 300 mm-hmm. bucks for the next belt. But this is, this is serious commitment. Yeah. It takes a long time in jujitsu. It takes about 10 years to get a black belt in jujitsu. And it's different belts for the kids. The kids get belted faster and it's not the same they can't get a black oh, belt so you okay. have to be an adult you have to be of a certain age and then um yeah it's about two years per belt so it takes a while see there's still great marketers then because i've watched performances and i don't know if you perform jujitsu in a public place or not but you know they're, they're trying to promote their service and they're always will show this kid who is a black belt going up against an adult who's a black belt but you're saying those are probably not the same thing yeah, they're not. There are no children well, that I know of. Children with jujitsu black belts. They can be a yeah. karate or taekwondo, but it's it's different. And they need belts more often because they need to stay enthused and excited, mm-hmm. and so they get more than we do. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's get started. Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the industry leaders at Do You Convert, where we talk about the current and future state of marketing and online sales for builders and developers across the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer? We'll do it. Simply send an email to show at doyouconvert.com. Welcome to episode 241. I'm Kevin Oakley and with me today is Jackie Lipinski and Julie Jarnigan. Hello, everyone. Hello. Did you have a brilliant statement, Julie, you wanted to open with? Oh, no. I was just going to say that Mike hasn't been on the podcast in a while, so I'm excited. Oh, to different have Mike. Him on. Yeah. Mike Samuelson. Oh, I thought you meant our Mike. His episode just went live and I just retweeted and shared everything. It, it is the episode I've been more excited for builders to hear than anyone since Rob Hahn, just because I love introducing new voices that I feel like a lot of people listening 
may not be aware of, but should be aware of. It is a little bit like sharing your toys with your friends, you know, <laughs> which, is, and you know, I hate analogy. I love analogies. This is a terrible one, but sometimes when I, when I meet someone who's that smart, I'm just like, Oh, I just, I want to keep you to myself for as long as possible. <laughs> and then I'm like, I, I just can't anymore. And, and Mike's one of those, those folks with Alto's research, but let's get into story time. Cause there is a lot to cover. Julie, you got anything first? I do. I do. We always talk about how things kind of come in waves and we start hearing the same questions over and over again this week yeah. for me. It's been reporting, but more specifically, like what time frame you should look at in your reports. So I had one builder who wanted somebody in leadership had asked for a new report about something that they wanted a weekly report. Then I had another builder that was asking me, well, what should I pay more attention to? 30 days over 30 days, quarter over quarter, year over year. So it's just been the trend I've been hearing. And I think it's probably because more as things change, leadership is asking for more data and more information. And so I was talking to the one marketer about, well, all of that data is good and useful, but in different contexts. Mm -hmm. You know, you as a marketer should be able to look at different things, but you need to be careful about what you're reporting and who you're reporting it to and how much context they have and how much they understand. Like week over week can be hard because things can shift and look like something's really dipped or it can be kind of confusing because it's not quite enough data. And then also we talked about the fact, like me, for instance, because I'm more on the back end of accounts and things, I like to look often at 30 day over 30 day because I can see any outliers or if something's broken, something's way up, something's way down. So that's just a useful thing for me. But there's not bad time periods. They're just different things for different reasons. Right. The only thing that's bad is to not have a time period of comparison because if you can't see the ground, you don't know how high up you are. You know, you don't know. There's all kinds of nautical analogies. We can, but you have to have some point of reference that you're choosing it, but knowing why you're choosing is really important. I also have a feeling that a lot of those questions came from going back through the market proof algorithm again at the summit last mm -hmm. week. Very well. And I just, again, a lot of you have the document, the tool to use. The thing that I think a lot of people continue to miss is continually updating your ratios in the consumer journey based upon the last 30, 60 days of actual reality. Like, Oh, I didn't, realize I should do that. In fact, yesterday someone said, well, I can't, I'm really excited to get going on this, Kevin, but I, I just need you to tell me what all of the best, best practice or benchmark numbers are to plug into those ratios. And I was like, no, 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 That's not, <laughs> it's not relevant. This, this is to project. What do you need based upon what your builder is actually experiencing right now? Traffic to lead, lead to appointment, appointment to sale and contribution rate. And I think, yeah. Go ahead, Jackie. Yeah. I'll usually take the original default goals. I'll move them all the way to the left. And I'm like, that's a good idea and a good understanding of where you should be. But after mm. a full year, I, I actually delete goals and I say, you know, builder names benchmarks. And then I just paste it in. And I'm like, here's where you need to think about. Yes, it's nice to know where the goals lie, but it's it's also like a kid where they're in the 70th percentile. Like someone needs to be in the range of the percentile and you can't always be in the in the center of everything. So, so your range is going to be different. And so that's mm -hmm. why you have to set your baselines. Like someone's have, you know, your family's small, you have small ratios, you're a small builder. That's where you need to be versus comparing your stuff to averages that might not be able to compare to you as a builder. Yeah. And, you know, benchmarks make people feel comfortable, mm -hmm. not always when they should feel comfortable. I mean, yeah, Sometimes it's good to know that everyone is down or up in a specific metric that yeah. you're also struggling with. But remember, that's an average that we're sharing. Sometimes we're sharing, you know, here's the average of the top 25 or here's the average overall. But that doesn't mean you should feel comfortable with average given your specific geographical market, the competitors you're facing, right? That, that's not an excuse to just look at it and go, oh, we're, we're okay. Mm -hmm. it, it could be. It could be a chance to give yourself a break. You know, my wife right now, homeschooling two kids. We have four kids total. She's trying to, to do other tasks and projects and all these things. And I was like, she's stressed out, understandably, right? Mm -hmm. As a lot of us are when we have too much going on. I'm like, how many of these things on your list are here just because you put them there? 
And how many of them have to be done at a level that only you are determining? <laughs> like we can give ourselves some, some of that grace that's necessary. And, and that can be why benchmarks can be helpful is saying, no, we, we shouldn't try to be doing significantly better than this because we understand our marketplace and we have these benchmarks for reference, but they're not an excuse just to say we're good. And interesting that you would choose this too, Julie, because I just got a budget worksheet sent to me, which was a reminder that budget season is upon us. And, and that's something else we talked about at, at this year's summit was 2023 budgeting and, and the process to do that. But interestingly, someone sent over not just their budget worksheet, but uh, like a, a document from the company president and leadership team about their goals for sales and marketing. And I just thought this was an interesting quote, I'm assuming from the company owner. We have all the basics covered, but we are not playing offense right now. I have no information that can tell me what the right move would be if the market changes. And that's what we always talk about at the Market Proof Academy when we start working with a new builder is we have to be able to help you identify the levers to pull based upon the situation. It's not just good enough to say, Mm -hmm. These ads are performing well. This is not doing well. But given the circumstance presented with, too many people essentially are looking at you know, blackness in front of them. They're just grasping. And, and we're trying to pull those levers out of the darkness, shine a light on them and say, this is exactly what you should do. And when you pull this lever, here's the reaction or impact you should expect. So we'll talk more about that when I get to my story time. But Jackie? Yeah. My story time comes from the joke Andrew made in the family call for DYC2. He had talked about how he had prepared so much for the hurricane, but it didn't hit him. So he felt silly. And I was like, I, there's a phrase around that that I think relates to home builders, but it's actually called the preparedness paradox. But it's actually when that hurricane does hit and you're so prepared that you still feel silly, even though you did all of the right steps. And so the same thing kind of goes with the last year and a half, you know, previously was very easy for marketers and the good marketers were preparing and knowing that it's going to not stay consistent. It's not going to stay like this. And so I need to be prepared. And so even at the summit, you're seeing this shift in the market and the people who have been preparing, they're not the flustered ones. And then the, and then people are thinking, well, do I need to be flustered? But you prepared, but now you feel silly, maybe because you did prepare, but we know you did the work. So it's kind of just this funny little paradox of you, if you did the job, you shouldn't feel panic, but it might have felt like overkill at the time. And now it's really just paying dividends for, for you and your mental health and, and how you're balancing your team and, and marketing strategy. Yeah, I love it. I think that's really, really good thoughts there. And what that immediately makes me think of is Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, because and the same thing, it, what if Andrew had said, I was prepared, I had hurricane shutters, I had all this stuff, but I didn't take any action. I was prepared without action. That also would have been ill-advised. Mm -hmm. And in the hero's journey and, and any kind of adventure you watch that has a hero, there is a point in time where the hero says, essentially, some version of, but I'm not ready. And yet they've already had the training montage sequence that shows all this preparedness that they've been going through. So I think that's the final thought I would just add on to that is you can't really over-prepare unless you never use any of it. You know, like some of my friends, not, not even friends, but I'm acquainted with people who would call themselves like preppers, you know, mm -hmm. end of times, like they're ready to go into the woods and, and survive off the land. I I'm glad I have friends who are like that so I can come hang out with them if that ever occurs, but that's just not, not where I'm, I'm at. But at some point, everyone says they're not ready. Like I remember so many times different employees that I had that conversation with another, another bad analogy scenario, but I would just say, look, you're leaning over the edge of the pool and the pool is filled with cash or promotion or whatever it is, that thing that you want. And I just have to push you in now. <laughs> you're, you keep thinking you're not ready, but you're never going to feel fully prepared. So I know you're not going to drown and I'm pushing you in the pool. <laughs> and hopefully you don't hate me for it later. And they never, you know, at least they never told me they did. And with so many marketers, I, I know when we did questions at academies or 
have are pre, you know, the downturn, I think they're they're just gonna have to be ready with what they have. And hopefully they've been doing their homework and been prepping for for what they need to do and the strategies. And you're right, understanding those next steps when you do see blips in the data of of what to do now. Yeah. I left my notes for my story time on the other computer, but that's okay. Cause I'm a professional. We're just going to, we're going to roll here. No edits necessary, Jackie. You're welcome. <laughs> the first thing is I, a friend of mine owns a furniture store. It's not a chain store. It's not a giant mega warehouse, but it's a fine furniture establishment. I think he would call it. And I was asking him how the pandemic had gone. Cause I, when I was out in Chicago, I spoke at a builder 20 group and someone there also has a family that's in furnishings. And he was telling me at dinner, he said, we had, I think it was six or 8,000 orders with two different manufacturers. And when the pandemic hit, they said, Hey, sorry, it's going to be a month late. Now it's three months late. Now it's four months late. And then eventually those manufacturers just said, you're never getting your furniture goodbye. And so they had to go and refund six to 8,000 customers who had put down money for this furniture. And you can imagine the strain on an organization thinking they have that money in the bank and then mm -hmm. having to send it all back out. So I was asking him, I said, did you have any of that? And he's like, no, not really, because we were more custom, like made in America, Amish built stuff. And so we certainly had delays, but it was something that was one of a kind for those people. And, and we didn't have to do as much shipping. But he said, I, there is a, a furniture store that I, I pay attention to, a competitor, and they have 15 shipping containers in their parking lot full of furniture for manufacturers that they ordered months ago. And you hear a lot about this on the news about Walmart or Target or companies having too much inventory of stuff that people don't really want anymore and how the market shifted. And my initial reaction, I said, oh, well, that's interesting. When is the sale gonna happen? Like the mm -hmm. you know tent sale, the 50% the off because, and of course, I mean, he's my friend, I'm supposed to buy my furniture from him, but I was like, what? When's all these deals going to happen? He goes, no, it's not. That's not going to happen because they paid a lot of money for those 15 containers. That was when everything was super expensive to ship. And you, you know, and so they are not interested in fire sailing that excess inventory. They're going to sell it when they can, maybe for a little bit of a reduction, but they're not going to just give it away. And I thought to myself, that sounds a lot like home builders. Not every builder, but a lot of builders saying, my homes are worth what they're worth. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll do a little bit of an incentive because the market is demanding that, you know, was now. But also a lot of builders are raising prices just to offer incentives, particularly financing incentives to try to make homes more affordable. But obviously that like that furniture store feels comfortable enough in their financial situation that they don't have to fire sale. And a lot of builders are in that same boat as well. And what you just have to really pay attention to and why I really recommend you go check out the, the episode with Altos Research's CEO, uh, Mike Samuelson, that, that just went out last Thursday, like understanding your local market data and how many shipping containers are in the parking lot. That, that is incredible. It doesn't matter. Anything we talk about in terms of macro or national trends is completely irrelevant to what is going on in your local market. And the good news, I think it's good news, is that local markets actually matter again. There was a period of time where it really the national story was the story and more or less everyone was experiencing it the same and we're, we're not there anymore. The other thing that I wanted to, just because this is our first time recording post-summit, mm. for those of you who weren't there, I just wanted to give a little sample. Maybe we'll do a webinar. I want to give everyone who went to the summit time to have a head start on all, all the stuff we talked about, but maybe we'll do some public webinars on, on some of the topics again. But at the beginning, I talked a little bit about becoming market-proof and, and four different individuals, uh, which I won't go into for sake of time. But, but really the things that we have to be thinking about and paying attention to if we're going to be market-proof organizations, market-proof individuals, and market-proof teams. And the first one is a fanatical dedication to listening to the market and being curious. If you're relying on market feedback in one month, one quarter increments, you're just going to be left behind by your competitors who are keeping their ear to the ground, paying attention and listening. It, it's that feedback loop that we shut down a lot of in the pandemic because we, everyone was overwhelmed. So let's just simplify and close down feedback loops. We've got to reopen all those feedback loops. Yeah, for example, Walk-in traffic not showing up, feedback loop. Uh, 
inventory home that's completely finished, not selling feedback loop. There's, they're, they're all over the place, but we've tended to say we're going to not listen or pay attention to those in the same way. Real estate community, realtors and brokers, we're for sure not going to listen to them, Kevin. Okay. Um, you don't have to, but I would recommend it. Uh, the second is complete intellectual honesty. And I feel like we're making progress here for the builders that we don't work with who reach out to me and they'll, they're like, Hey, Kevin, do you think billboards will solve our problem of appointments not converting to sale? It's not going to, and we really can't outspend our way out of an appointment to sale issue. And if a appointment to sale is where things are broken, we've got to have the intellectual honesty to, to focus on the areas that are broken by the data and stay there and not kid ourselves that, you know, clowns and cotton candy are going to solve it for us. Uh, number three, you have to have endurance and speed. So we talked about uh, the, the world record marathon runner. I mean, he can run a marathon unofficially in under two hours. Officially, he owns the world record of two hours and, you know, two hours and one minute and some seconds. <laughs> like ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. But you need both endurance and speed. And the key is to know when to sprint and when to, when to pace yourself and not get burned out. And then the last one, we, we talked about Scotty Pippen as the ultimate team member and you've got to be a team member that's willing to sacrifice ego, stats, budget, whatever it is for the greater good of the organization, if you're going to make it through. And then kind of the, the last thought is that having, in summary to, to a lot of that, for marketers in particular, is that having the right answer is not impressive at all. It's knowing how to get the next right answer. So again, knowing how to get the next right answer is what is impressive. It's not knowing the answer because you can just listen to this podcast or pay someone and get an answer that might work for right now. But the key is as conditions are changing, which they're going to keep changing for a while is to be able to quickly figure out the next answer. That's how your, your company and, and you win. Like I said, I had coffee. I had to get all that out. <laughs> with no notes you had no notes on any of that i had some notes on my phone but <laughs> not on yeah not the usual show notes you guys have a favorite educational piece of content i do have one other thing that personally i i learned that i do want to share but any of all the sessions you heard or listened to something that you you felt like resonated with the audience or with you the most yeah i loved the leadership panel that you did the first day and it had an owner a digital marketing director, and then somebody who was more on the sales side. VP of sales, yeah, for Meredith. VP of sales. And I thought there was some great information. And I loved from a bra the owner, co-owner of Abrazo oh, Homes, yeah. his honest feedback. And we somebody asked about customer satisfaction mm -hmm. or customer experience. Yeah. I don't remember exactly if, I don't think he said waste of time, but basically he, said, he was, he said it was number two on his list and everyone was like, not number one. <laughs> he was kind of saying it, it's, there's certain things right now that can't be the priority. Like you should have been working on that, mm -hmm. you know, last year, or earlier this year, it's kind of too, there's bigger things for you to focus on right now. And I kind of thought his honesty on some of those questions were refreshing. Yeah, that was they really all cool. did a great job. It, it definitely made some people gasp. And I love anytime that someone's brave enough to, to be potentially controversial talking to him afterwards, you know, it's essentially he was saying sales are number one priority revenue mm -hmm. to keep the company open and, and working and experiences is a distant number two. And exactly right. He was saying, you know, you, if you haven't spent the good times investing in, you know, a better website, better sales team, better backend processes that, that digitize and allow for hybrid and all these other things that make a better customer experience possible. If you're just going to focus on that for the next six months, you're not going to have enough revenue as a smaller builder that needs revenue. Yeah. They open. And I, so I, there's a lot of people who came up and gave them a fist bump and said, thank you for saying that. Thank you for being honest. And, and actually, Jackie, I'll let you go next, but yeah, most people's favorite thing about the summit was actually what Mike jokingly calls a little skit, which was it's time to get back to business. Like he wore a tie for the first time. And I, I saw him that morning and I, I had a clue as soon as I saw the tie, I was like, ah, I know where he's going with this, but we haven't worn a tie presenting at the builder show, PCBC, our event in like five, six years. And he's like, Hey, it's, it's time to get back down to business. 
and that's, that's really what it is. Everyone's got to stay tremendously focused on making sure that your organization, and there's a lot of skepticism about, you know, well, where did all that money and profit go to? If that's your perspective, just, you're not going to do well, you know, going back to the teamwork side, if you're like, well, you know, shouldn't there, like, don't be grumpy. This is not the time to be grumpy. Again, grumpiness people might've tolerated over the last two years because they, for lots of reasons, but don't be grumpy now, be a team member. So I feel like I have a cheat sheet because I ran the testimonials during the summit. Oh, well, I also sent out the surveys, but my, my takeaway one agreed, everyone loved business time, but two, it was more just staying focused on what works. And again, don't, don't be panicky. Like panic, panic doesn't serve. Like you needed to be doing your homework. And, and so I think a lot of people, um, some people were coming up to me afterwards and they're like, this was just a nice, ref- every summit, right? This is just such a nice refresher of I'm on the right path. I need to change my path. I need to refocus or I need to come back to, you know, I think you had talked about Kevin, if your foundation is cracked, your foundation's cracked and we need to fix that. You know, you, you have to go back all the way, even on your website and realize how you are communicating with your buyers, your customers, and just how that message needs to stay consistent across the board as you as a company. So again, the, and the panic should not leak from the top down at all. And, and you just need to be true to what you, you believe and have clear goals. So that would. Yeah. And more than anything else, I, I went right after the summit to speak at a builder 20 in Chicago. And I told the group of 20 CEOs, I said, if your team members were here, they would be begging me to tell you this. And they all leaned forward. I said, stop changing everything all the time. Pick a direction, create a plan, support the team in the direction of that. But you're all acting like cats on crack. And every three days you want to change your mind and change direction and change priority. And I understand why you're stuck there because you got away with that due to the excessive demand of the last couple of years. But that is not that's not where your team or your customers or your business needs to be now. It's it's extremely detrimental to not lead in that way. My favorite one came from the incredible, amazing, insightful Steve Passanelli from BombBomb. Mm-hmm. And he said, novelty is a hack. Value and trust are, and I think I might have wrote this wrong, but I'd like, I like this change. Value and trust are the strategy. And why that resonates so much with me is all of the attention in marketing, but advertising specifically tends to be around hacks, mm-hmm. growth hacks, exposure hacks, like how can we hack the system, hack the algorithm and novelty is a hack, meaning it, it can work, but it's short lived. And if you can't transition that novelty, like and he was talking about in the feed, in your messaging, in your creative that you're using. You can, you can always shock people into paying attention by showing them something they don't expect, by being novel. But if you don't transition that to trust and providing value, it's not going to work. And the other thing that I, I know is a lot of people's highlights was that every, every message you send your customer is training them how to interact with your next message. So stop spamming people, stop sending irrelevant information, right? All, all those things are incredibly important. And then Julie and I were on a call today where it hit me because I'm not as bright as it might appear at times. I said, I think novelty is a synonym for the word new. And you confirm that's, yes, that's correct, novel right, Julie? and new, yes. Mm-hmm. Julie's our professional writer on, on the team. So <laughs> I said, well, that's interesting because what we have known for what feels like forever is that Using the word new in messaging does work for builders. And this is the time to be thinking about what new floor plans can you release with minimal changes or adjustments? They don't have to be brand new, but rename the Stanford, the pine and give it a little different elevation or included feature set. Brand new floor plans just released. You will get a higher open rate on that email. That's why new communities are so compelling. New maybe is a hack that does work, but again, you got, you have to transition it. And if you start saying to people, you know, something that's new, that's not really new, again, you're training them to ignore your next mm-hmm. time you talk about something new. So, all right. Now a quick word from our supporting partner, Open Door. Open Door is a digital real estate platform that helps you serve more customers with certainty, speed, and ease. As a builder, you can eliminate contingencies by giving your customer an instant home buyer on their current home 
so they can unlock the funds they need to buy their new build home. Go to opendoor.com forward slash do you convert to learn more about how you can partner with Opendoor. That actually leads me into a question, Jackie. Do we have, I know we don't live stream the event. Everyone asks that, that live streaming an event is like putting on two and a half events at once when mm-hmm. you're doing a live yeah. event. So we don't, we don't live stream. We do record a lot of video. Do you know if we record audio? We did not record audio this year. Okay. So you're not going to hear this, but we did an amazing panel with Open Door, Zillow, and Zonda as well, talking about digital disruption in real estate, serving the customer you know, as priority number one, and that their customer is both builders and customers at the same time, which can, it is serving two masters to an extent, but they are focused on both. I just thought it was really interesting when Derek from Opendoor was talking, again, me not being on it, he talked about Opendoor obviously is, is part of the beginning process, potentially when someone looks at, at a new home and they can get an instant offer in the home they have now and maybe get rid of that fear and provide certainty by getting that cash offer that they can then close up to uh, nine months later. But then he said, you know, cancellation rates, according to Zellman, I just saw their latest stat, consistently over the last two, three months nationwide, over 30%. And he, his point was, if you get someone calling about a cancellation or they have a cancellation on their current home, but they've already been in process for five months, that doesn't mean open door can't be introduced in that process. So someone calls and says, I can't close on my new home. Why? Because my buyer in my existing house backed out due to fear about rates or whatever. I just hadn't really thought about people having to sell their current home, having to deal with cancellations and contracts the same to the same extent, or be potentially even greater than what a builder has to deal with in cancellations and open door being able to solve that problem as well. That, that just kind of was like, wow, that's a no brainer. Some, you know, there's no risk there that that person's already about to cancel you know, introduce them to open door and the possibility of making that, that adding that certainty to the equation. All right. First up from the news, market proof Academy is coming up November 9th and 10th. We have very few tickets left, just a handful, I think two, I last check it'll be in person. And I think in the past, we've always talked about this as, you know, figuring out a way to become better at doing a lot of the work yourself. In the online sales world, we have kind of a fast start program. And in some ways, this could be a fast start introduction to someone who's not familiar with housing, marketing housing, or just not as comfortable in the digital world. But I think if you're talking to an owner or if you are an owner listening, the bigger takeaway right now is that you're going to be able to save a lot of money Mm -hmm. over the next 12 months when you attend. It's not not a sales pitch. We've actually had people save hundreds of thousands of dollars being able to bring things in-house. So we partner with builders who have in-house teams who run their digital efforts. We partner with builders who outsource that to us. But without a doubt, this event will help you save money by either managing the partner that you're using more effectively or by saying, you know what, this is straightforward enough and I have the time now to do this as the market slows that I can save money not having to pay uh, someone else to do that. I know one individual, Janice, went to our summit uh, last spring and she came up to me at the summit and was like, I've saved over $10,000 just by taking this on myself and the results are better. Uh, just yeah. just purely talking about Google search ads uh, in particular. So link in the show notes, marketproofacademy.com. Final, final tickets there coming up November 9th and 10th live in Tampa, Florida. Next up, lawsuit alleges wiretapping, <laughs> something similar to wiretapping on Zillow. And, you know, this is, we talked about this briefly at the summit as well. Carrie from Antari Sums was the first one to post it in the Market Proof Marketing Facebook group right when it came out. But essentially, heat mapping is the culprit here. So if you use a tool on your site that tracks mouse interactions and movements, so we're not recording audio, we're not recording video, all it is doing is tracking what the user is looking at, how long they're seeing on individual pages. And, and this lawsuit is saying that Zillow using a heat mapping tool is like wiretapping someone's phone and an invasion of privacy. So what do we think? 
about I this? I think maybe what they're really saying is you forgot a sentence in your privacy policy that we caught and now we would like some money, please. But I feel like this is a tool to help improve your site to see how people move. It is not the level of which they're accusing it of. And it feels very clickbait to me personally, because I I think we as marketers, we actually know what it means. And it is not something we're actually using for negative that I think that they're implying here. So my question was, so the session replay, so heat mapping kind of gives you an aggregate of like where everybody is spending their time. This session Mm -hmm. replay, is it, can you pull out one individual person and follow them? Is that how it's kind of different from what most people do in heat mapping? Okay. Yeah, it is. When you go back in and there's lots of tools that we've used and builders we work with have used tools like Hotjar and Lucky Orange. Lucky Orange is the least expensive. It's like 10 bucks a month for a couple thousand sessions. You can see the IP address, which then also tells you the general geographic location of the user. And then you can tell the source or medium that brought them to the site or the ad campaign. And then Again, no audio. You're just looking at the mouse. And you most time when you're watching those, you would speed it up two or three times. And the purpose of this really is to say, as an example, I had 500 page views come in from a source like Zillow. And yet I'm not seeing a high conversion on that. Yet I see, you know, eight minute average time on site and a lot of other good things in the quality metrics. I'm wondering if what they're coming to see, are they getting lost? And so you would pick a particular campaign or a source or medium. And this really works best when you know exactly where they're coming from, mm-hmm. like what the creative is on the ad. And you're watching 20, 30, 50 people kind of go through. And just like we talked about at the beginning, Julie, it's, it's looking for those echoes of interesting. People aren't able to find where our new homes are located. They only keep finding inventory and they seem to be confused. So you are watching a recording, but you don't really know the intent. I guess the only the only thing that maybe is that gray area is if someone types something in to the screen in a search field, mm. maybe that reveals something. But at the end of the day, Jackie, like you said, this is all used to create a better user experience. To my knowledge, and maybe the technology could be hacked to do something nefarious, I don't know of anyone who would create a remarketing message or a sales automation piece based upon something that a third-party heat mapping uh, user replay session tool would create. So it's like any form of aggregate data. Even though you're watching one at a time, you're like, what do I do with that one? Yeah. There There is nothing to be done, really. Yeah. Well, you hear about, and I don't know if it's true. I think they say it's not possible, but you know, when people say, oh, don't search for, search for Mm. flights on incognito because the flights go up if you keep looking at that same flight. So it's almost like if they use that data then to change something for the consumer, which I don't know if they really do that or if it's just by what's available and how many, you know, like that. So that's the only thing I can think that might be problematic if it actually changes what's available to the consumer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I just think, you know, website visitors reasonably expect that their interactions with a website should not be released to third parties unless explicitly stated. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the initial question was, should every builder uh, remove any of these tools from their site? I mean, you definitely, like you said, Jack, you want to make sure your privacy policy is not just something you copied and pasted from another company and stuck on your site. I mean, it needs to, it needs to be robust. Now there was a builder that we, well, there still is a builder we work with in California who I believe their privacy policy was 30 some pages long. It's California, highly, you know, litigious part of the country. Maybe that makes sense, but also it it was cuckoo, but you probably do need to make sure that your privacy policy is accurate and, and updated in all the uses. But really what happens generally speaking with lawsuits is that people find a company that's already down and they kick them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, you know, not that not the Zillow as a company is necessarily down, but their stock price is reduced. Their market cap is lower. And so then you see people coming out of the woodwork uh, trying to, it's, it's like you're watching one of those wild America shows, you know, and, and some animal gets wounded and then all of a sudden all the other animals try to attack the wounded animal. But 
just be careful because I don't I don't think Zillow's a wounded animal. <laughs> You're gonna so I, I I don't see that one winning, but it's interesting. I think I mean if for some reason they do win though, like that is a big blanket, like hey, all builders actually do remove this or here's at least they'll show us the roadmap. To yeah, but even if they lose, I think it's going to be on the technicality. Again, I don't think, I think it's going to just have to do with something that that wasn't properly disclosed, but I don't think that again, Google and Amazon, if Andrew were here, he'd be screaming like they track us more than anyone else. Everybody like we're worried about Facebook or Zillow. If you're logged into Gmail, they know everything you're doing everywhere all the time. So I, I think it'll just be a, something to pay attention to, to adjust, but I still don't think you're going to have to remove it. Next up from sfexaminer.com, new law represents seismic shift in California housing policy. A new state law would allow developers to convert strip malls and office parks into apartment buildings in a policy change that could produce far more housing than last year's high profile effort to end single family zoning in California. So government trying to solve this housing affordability, housing availability issue by making it easier to convert large buildings into apartments, which conceptually, again, makes all the sense in the world. Uh, I remember talking to someone, though, who was referencing a project in Manhattan that had been going on for, gosh, I think it was eight to 10 years. They were rehabbing it, and they still you know, weren't done. So it's not a quick process to take a skyscraper that was an office building and convert it into apartments. It's not as straightforward as you might imagine. Well, what do we think about this one? You know, I think it creates opportunity. I've, I don't know about you guys, but where I used to live and and where I live now, you know, you go to the mall or these shopping centers and I buy everything online. Like I might try in a few things, but most of the stores, the malls are deserted. And so if there are opportunities and it makes sense, I I like this idea for adding more to the more opportunity to live, especially in places that maybe, you know, are centered or have more opportunity for that. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other quote here is, um, the fact that the bill didn't touch any rules related to existing residential neighborhoods made it an easier pill to swallow. Mm. We're primarily talking about commercial corridors that are underutilized, blighted, and not economically viable, Wick said. The idea of transforming that into multifamily mixed income housing is appealing. So it's, it's just additive. And I think we've talked around this topic before zoning laws in general and regulatory, it, like that is as much of a reason for house price increases as anything else. And I've had uh, people that I are way smarter than me say that essentially all zoning is some form of bigotry or racism. Like the whole concept originally started with, we don't want these kind of people living here. And so to that point, I say, yeah, let's remove zoning and any of those hurdles to the extent that we can. And actually, it was interesting. I talked to someone at the summit from Houston and I came up and I said, hey, I read this great article about, you know, Houston, generally speaking, has the most lax zoning, to put it mildly, of any large metropolitan area. And she is like, yeah, and the downside is you get all different kinds of houses on a single street and it doesn't necessarily feel as cohesive. But the positive side is, you know, the red tape to create what the market needs doesn't exist. And so that the article is extremely positive on look what Houston's able to do because of a lack of restrictive zoning. So it's an, it's an interesting article. Definitely check out the link for more details on that end. Next up from the Wall Street Journal, all the uh, highfalutin mm. news sources this week. <laughs> the U.S. is running short of land for housing. Land use restrictions, here we go again, kind of the same, mm -hmm. same theme, different perspective. Land use restrictions and lack of in infrastructure have made it harder for developers to find sites to build homes. Almost across the board, you're fighting for land. And this is talking about Tampa, which Andrew's been talking about this for a long, a long time, how hard it is for, you know, they need more um, building in that area. And then it's difficult because of all the zoning and there's not enough land. and. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for the marketers listening who are like, I don't do much. It is important to understand that, for instance, one of the most important things in most parts of the country when you're looking at land to develop, where are the sewers running? Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, that doesn't the sewer just have to go where the homes need to be built? 
Kind of, but generally speaking, it it's like playing, I think it's chicken feet dominoes. Mm-hmm. Like the, the rule with chicken feet is you have to build off of the existing domino train that is there. You can't just say, I'm going to start a new sewer line over here that doesn't connect. And it's the connectedness combined with the extreme expense of extending it. That means that most of the time development just follows along where the sewer goes. And you'll have builders and developers tie up large parcels of land in expectation that the sewer is going to head in their direction over time. They try to stay ahead of that. But so so essentially what it's just saying is the problem is the land where people can live land use restrictions and a lack of public investment in roads, rail, and other infrastructures like sewer have made it harder than ever for developers to find sites near big population centers to build homes. People keep moving to cities such as Austin, Phoenix, and Tampa. They're pushing up the price of dirt and making the housing shortage in these fast-growing areas even worse. What's interesting, back to my friend with the furniture store example, I listened to uh, Philippe from Meritage. He's the CEO of Meritage Homes and the CEO of Pulte. And uh, the CEO of Ashton Woods, uh, Zellman, had their housing summit the same week as ours. So I was watching the replays because they their their event was virtual, so you could watch rewatch the sessions. And essentially, they all said kind of the same thing: we've got a lot of land, a lot of things tied up, and we're not necessarily in a rush to sell any of it right now. We we are though looking and saying we're just going to pick the best stuff to move forward with. But we're not just going to get rid of it because that is still our future supply for the business. So like that person sitting on too much furniture, they're looking at it saying, I don't need this much land. But so far, the stress is not bad enough that these public builders are saying we need to get rid of it. They might write down the value of some of it. That's an accounting trick that they can do. But they're not willing to dump it. Mm-hmm. They're just going to develop the best. And so that still means that it, that land's not available for their competitors. So even in places where historically land has been more available, this article just talks about how, look, land prices don't, don't expect them to reset as drastically as you might hope, which that was one of the big benefits of the great financial crisis. You had, you had land values go down. And until 20, even 18, there were a lot of builders still selling lots that they had purchased at a tremendous discount when everyone was selling or walking away from deals in the GFC. Well, and that's what this particular article kind of revolves around a rancher who has a bunch of land and everybody's kind of clamoring for it. And at the end, he basically says, like, sometimes it's tempting to take this money people are trying to throw at me, but like, where else am I, where am I going to put that money once? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the bigger economy and market kind of play into it too, because why would he sell it now? He's, he's happy to have it there in that land. Yeah. I mean, that is one asset that is not as likely to, again, especially over a period of time, become worth less. So, yep. Finally, from digitalinformationworld.com, we have Google Chrome hints to block various ad blockers in the coming year. Wow, this is like um, my kids play, what's the kitten game? Exploding Kittens. Mm. And in Exploding Kittens, there is a card called the Nope card. And whatever someone does, even out of your own turn, you can play the Nope and that undoes whatever the other person did in the game. But anyone else who has a note card, they can nope your nope. And then that undoes your undoing. And now that thing happens. So this is just when I Google Chrome hints to block ad blockers. Isn't that ironic? Yeah, I threw this in there because people on Reddit were getting steamy about it. They're like, <laughs> no, my ad blockers. But it does it does bring up a good point in terms of it. It's talking about, well, they're doing it because of actually like privacy laws. They can't they can't say that you can prevent it. So it become more secure. You actually have to have less ability to customize these things about your your browsers and mm. what you're searching. So I thought that was interesting. So it's not confirmed. I'm sure this leaked out in the world so that people would would give it some flack and maybe it will keep, but just something to be interested in because I do know that even us marketers sometimes we're like, oh, the ads and the, you know, we don't always want to see them. And so we're 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 the culprits here too, sometimes to block those. Yeah, I love watching everyone's terrible, outdated blah remarketing that I get. It's awesome. I can't tell you some of the, I mean, because I, I look at a lot of different builder sites and, and do a lot of research and some of you need to just go look at what's running because it's not good. 
so so blah. And you know, one of the things if Andrew was on, he talked about this at the summit, but the the, the dynamic display ads that Google offers, it it can show you some good data, but some of those ads are hideous. You know, it just shows sometimes depending on the ad size. Even this one right now I'm looking at from from Microsoft. It's a it's a dynamic ad from Microsoft for the rewards extension. But it's been formatted dynamically to only show the Microsoft logo, the black words, add the extension, and install. I mean, it looks like it's trying to like, put a virus on my machine. But even a company as large as Microsoft falls for that hideous display tactic. So finally, from last week or two weeks ago, question of the week, I found this interesting because people were very excited about the show, oh. but either we're just, it's business time and we're not watching it or people generally, I think, have a similar feeling, which is Buy My House on Netflix is a horrible show. So <laughs> I tried to watch it. I couldn't oh, get did through you? it. I couldn't get through it. I watched the beginning of it and then it's I never, so I was like, I'll watch it later and I never got back to it. Oh yeah, that's I the think, feedback. Lack of effort shown in a Shark <laughs> Tank knockoff. Yeah, that's that's kind of it. It's trying to be like Shark Tank, but you can tell, I think, that the producers, I'm not talking about the four experts on the panel. We could talk about that separately. The producers definitely are not housing people. There's so many interesting narratives or ways they could have done it. It definitely needed to be faster pace. But anything that I was quasi interested in knowing more about, like, yeah, we're not talking about that. We're just going to talk about you know, why they decided to paint their kitchen blue 50 years ago. I mean, it was just, it was slow and painful. So that's sad. Uh, Jake, Jake said, I made it one and a half episodes, lacks death and seems like a low effort shark tank knockoff. Like you said, that's my condensed summary. And uh, Amy said, I lasted through one negotiation, not for me. So there you go. We saved you a couple hours of your life. Just skip that show. You'd be better off watching Tilson Live or MI Homes Live. Right. shows they're they're far more compelling all right thanks for listening be sure to send in your industry-related questions to show at youconvert.com and we'll touch on them in our next episode i have a great one that i didn't add to the show notes but i'll i'll drop in there next time so send those questions to show at youconvert.com and we'll touch on them in a next episode have a good one we'll see you next week see ya bye Marketproof Marketing is proudly supported by Opendoor. Visit opendoor.com forward slash do you convert to learn how you can partner with Opendoor to increase certainty, speed, and ease for your home buyers. All opinions expressed by me, Andrew Peak, Jackie Lipinski, and our castmates are solely our own opinions. View hundreds of articles, videos, and more for free at doyouconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on social networks or in real life. Now get to work and make sure your company is market-proof.